Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. The last time my guest was here, we were discussing, among other things, caring for children's feet, particularly at a time when they started school. Today I would like to talk with Stephen Boskill, a well-known podiatrist in Newcastle, about caring for the feet of people who have a problem with obesity and or diabetes. Stephen, thank you for coming into the program. How long have you been practising and has all that time been here in Newcastle? Look, it's quite frightening now with the date being in June 2006. It's the best part of 20 years and uh, I did a few years in Sydney before moving up here. So you've actually been practising for 20, 25 years or something? But just under 20 years. Mm. Have you found that the community is more familiar with podiatrists than they were when you first started? Oh, very much so. Um, the changing role of podiatry from the old days of early chiropathy um, has made a, a, a big difference. And people are now much more aware of their feet, and especially that, uh, that of the younger age group. And thankfully that uh, parents and grandparents are now seeing the value, as we discussed last time, of early intervention and having children's feet checked as they would do eyes, ears, etc. So how long ago is it since they changed it from chiropathy to podiatry? Good question. I wouldn't like to give an exact time frame. I would probably say about 15 years, but yeah. someone will no doubt come in with the right answer. Do you know why they changed it? Partly it was a uh, confusion of names. Uh, a lot of people were walking into chiropodists and expecting their backs to be fixed by a chiropractor, <laughs> which was always... Um, uh, a bit of an embarrassment and a waste of time. The other thing, of course, was the educational level. Um, chiropathy really means hand and feet, um, whereas podiatry is really basically the treatment of the, the foot and the lower limb. So when you were first started in practice, was the clients that you saw, were they mainly the elderly? elderly? The large percentage were more elderly, but um, there was a, a beginning, an influx with the running craze back in the uh, late 70s and things, uh, people coming in with sporting problems and prevention strategies and a greater awareness with the uh, development of running footwear of the importance of the foot function on the rest of the body. And, of course, this has continued on over the years and, and um, athletes particularly are, um, are quite up-to-date with all the problems that can arise. Oh, very much so. It's a, yeah. it's a big science in itself now. Is it widely recognised that obesity, I mean, it's becoming a problem, but that it has a problem with the people's feet? I think there is obviously a, a gut understanding that something is wrong. There is um, a growing perception, thank goodness, that obesity is a big problem. Um, the big problem is with this, though, is how do you tackle it? Uh, willpower and also met metabolic things and diet. Um, but certainly obesity um, is being recognised absolutely throughout the medical profession as a as number one cause of, of major problems, including diabetes. Um, but it is spreading now through the community. So feet obviously come in amongst all that we are aware of what we're doing type thing? Yes, and uh, of course the feet being the contact with the ground carry the full impact of everything that's above them, including all the obesity, the unwanted wobbly bits and everything else. So if you've got someone who's obese and having problems getting around simply because of their weight what is the effect that it has on their feet well there's gross gross strain on the feet just purely through the fact of carrying too much weight and the foot structure itself doesn't alter to accommodate the extra weight and the bones of the foot if you actually look at them are very small and so when they're carrying this huge weight 
they really are under great strain. The other thing is that the leg muscles often can't carry the weight adequately, so they allow the foot to go into a collapsed position, generally. Um, a fallen arch would have been the, the loose term used years ago. Um, and the other bad thing that obesity has, gross obesity, is the fact that people can't walk in a normal straight what we call a frontal plane gait. They start waddling from side to side or they have to swing one leg out past the other to move one leg in front of the other one. So we get a whole altered biomechanical syndrome, which then, combined with the extra weight, is just completely disastrous, really, to a good foot function. So the whole effect that it has on on the foot is to throw the whole body out of balance because of the way they're putting their feet to the ground absolutely and of course the uh, the foot once it doesn't function the foot actually is probably one of the most complicated bony structures of the body the way it functions when it's working properly when it hits the ground it's in a locked position and then it unlocks itself to adjust the ground terrain and before you that's at the heel strike and before you come off at toe off the foot should ideally come back into a locked position so the foot is a rigid lever to propel you forward. Now, with um, a pronated foot, which is the most common sort of flat-footed type, the foot remains unlocked most of the time. Um, and in an obese person, the foot tends to hit with a very flat position, and it has twofold effects. One, it remains unlocked, so the foot isn't working properly. It comes off in a, a sort of skewed direction, and we get bunion formation, we get extra pressure points, calluses. And the other thing that does happen is because it's pronated, it hits the ground and there's no shock absorption within the foot. So not only have we got a jarring effect, but we've got the increased weight of the body on top of that as well. So again, we get extra calluses, cracking heels, bone deformations, the lot. Does this make a difference to the way people walk, as in, for example, pigeon-toed or splayed-footed? Well, normally it would tend to be more sort of splayed-footed, as I said before, because of the, the thickness of the calves. Um, and, and the thigh muscles and the fat that's on them. Some people just can't walk in a normal you know, left-right position. They have to swing the legs around or waddle from side to side. So the whole thing is just thrown completely out of balance. What are the first signs that someone like that would notice that their feet are getting into trouble? You'd probably find that it's decreased exercise would be um, the, the vicious cycle they get into because it's uncomfortable to walk, it's too much effort to walk. Um, they'd probably start noticing that um, there's aches and pains in the legs, the feet in particular, rising up through the legs, even up to the hips, the low back, um, which would then sort of tend to prevent the keenness to do more exercise. Um, you'd start noticing probably cracking heels, um, extra calluses, and perhaps even with the foot being swollen through the extra weight, perhaps rubbing on the footwear, things like that. So if they've got shoes that are starting to rub, would they tend to go towards looser-fitting shoes which don't support the foot anyway? Probably so, and you tend to find um, with the sort of obesity, tends to be in a, not always, but in a socioeconomic group, they tend to wear sort of cheaper-fitting vinyl shoes and things which don't give adequate support. So then we've got the, the, the double whammy of you know, bad biomechanics and very poor footwear, which is you know, really just compounds the problem even more. You often see someone who's overweight wearing the, the dear old thongs. Um, I guess that this would make you show your, your head in, in absolute horror when you see that. Well, it does. And um, they often, as a sequelae to wearing thongs, they get massive cracked heels and chafing between the toes. So, yes, it's not good. 
do the feet mainly swell as a result of the extra weight, A, and B, if they are swelling, do the loose shoes that allow more room for the for changes through the day? Well, the loose, yeah, look, in general terms, if you're getting fat tends to stay stable, um, but there's the other thing is that uh, you get edema, which is fluid in the tissues, and there's a lot of that with obesity. Now, in general terms, in the mornings, when the body's been lying flat, the edema can have a, um, a chance to get back and be squeezed out of the legs. As the day progresses, and even for normal people, the feet will tend to swell. So in the mornings, of course, when they put the f- shoes on, if they're loose-fitting, they'll slop around. As the day progresses, the shoe will tighten up. And that's why, as a little hint, it's always good to buy shoes later in the day if you do have a tendency to have slightly swelling feet. Podiatrist Stephen Boskill is my guest today, and we're talking about what being overweight does to our feet. Stephen, we were talking about loose-fitting shoes affecting our feet. Now, what are the the long-term dangers of being overweight, wearing loose shoes, um, flopping around? Does this can this change the structure of the foot permanently? Okay, well let's let's take that question in two parts. Long-term effect of being overweight. Um, not only does it um, put excess strain on the heart and the cardiovascular system, um, plus all, a lot of other of the organs and functions of the body, we're then carrying a huge amount of weight on the on the girdle of the hips. So we're getting uh, lower back strain, which follows down through the hips, extra loading on the hips, the knee joints, then down into the complex structure of the foot, the ankle joint, and all the little metal tarsals and small bones in the foot. So we're straining everything there. So there's a much greater chance of degeneration of the hip joints, knee joints, and all the foot joints. Um, so osteoarthritic changes or just general uh, ligamentous damage that goes on and and joint surface damage. So there's a long-term um, danger there. And, of course, once these surfaces are damaged, um, they can't really be repaired other than by surgery, if you hopefully sometimes, or in the uh, the worst scenario, joint replacement, which is quite serious. And, of course, if the excess weight still continues, then the joint won't last as long as if the body were in its proper weight ratio. With the loose-fitting shoes, of course, as we said before, with obesity, the gait pattern isn't a normal forward progression. It's a side-to-side waddle, perhaps with the feet and the legs swinging out one after the other. The foot isn't functioning properly. So not only does the foot not land squarely on the ground and have its weight evenly balanced between, the in, say, the fifth toe and the big toe, and have it squarely balanced so the foot hasn't got a tendency to sway, slip or slide one way or the other, but it tends to want to skew out one way, normally outwards. And so we get a progressive pressure loading on the bones. And a man called, Dr. Called Wolf, had a law that bone will deform to the pressures put upon it more easily so in young age, but as you get older it still is essentially a fluid substance that given long-term pressure will deform and adapt to the pressures put upon it. So the short answer to that really is that if you put enough adverse pressure on a foot, it will deform in the direction of the pressure. Now, if someone is determined and they lose weight, the damage that's done to their feet while they were overweight, will this repair itself in some way or is the damage done? Well... If that question is asked all the time, and if I had a 
solution to it, I'd be a multi-billionaire. I think people say, once they've got bunions, can you reverse it? And the answer is no, you can't reverse it. The best we can do as podiatrists, really, uh, I think realistically, is with proper orthoses, that's sh- custom-made shoe inserts, is to halt the progression at best and um, slow it down, certainly. But unfortunately, once the foot structure is damaged, it can't really be returned um, to its normal function. Surgery is progressing, and it has got a lot better, but really that's the last resort. Um, But once the structural damage has been done, it's more or less permanent. You've mentioned a couple of times about bunion. The layman will see um, somebody with a bunion as um, a lump on the side of their big toe. Exactly what is a bunion? Okay, a bunion... um it comes, well, when we look at, say, the classic, well, that's what I was talking to a client this morning, I said about developing grandma's toes, and she laughed. Um, it's where you've got the big toe pointing violently across, or, or to various degrees, across the rest of the foot. Sometimes you get the second toe coming under it or over the top of it. That's what the technical term is hallux subducto valgus, just means that the big toe is pointing outwards. But then as a consequence of that, the, um, the long bone, the metatarsal, and the uh, joint where the big toe starts, that actually starts to deform. Again, as I said about Wolf's Law, um, with the pressure being put upon it, the bone will actually start to grow in the direction of where the pressure is, and then where the pressure isn't being applied, it will become resorbed, um, and just the whole joint shape will change and become arthritic, and uh, will be a permanent deformation. So basically a bunion is just a a change of, of bone, um, as a consequence of pressure. When our feet swell, it's usually uncomfortable, of course, but I can recall seeing women in particular um, where their feet and ankles are so swollen that they sort of hang over the side of their shoes. Um, is all of that fluid? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a horrible sight, actually, isn't it? It mm. makes, you, makes you cringe when you must, see it. It must yes. be terribly uncomfortable. Mm, mm, it's terribly unhealthy for the feet. Look, the majority of that is fluid. I mean, obviously, there is a component of fat on the foot itself, which makes the shoe tight. But certainly when it hangs over, that's what we call um, edema. And there's a couple of types of that. But it does indicate that the body's lymphatic system isn't draining properly. There might be a cardiovascular problem, which uh, isn't allowing circulation to go through properly and to help the lymphatic system pump back. It's also actually... Um, it can be a thing of uh, lack of proper exercise because when we walk, the muscles contract or uh, and they help pump the, the, the blood back to the heart, but they also helps the lymphatic system drain. So it's a fairly um, complex issue in itself, but really when that it happens, a consultation should be made with their GP for further evaluation. To help with all this swelling, is it um, advisable to wear support hose? Look, in the clinic, I've long promoted the use of um, compression socks and um, for many years I've been interested in this before the uh, the airline scare came off. I've been promoting these for a long time. Um, yeah, look, it's very important to, especially if you're in a, a sedentary type situation or you're not exercising much. I, I wear a pair of compression socks when I'm in the clinic um, because I basically am sitting down most of the day. I do walk around but not enough really to get enough cardiovascular or, or proper exercise, and I find them very, very comfortable. In fact, a few of my staff wear them, and they swear by them. Um, I had a veterans' affairs patient came in once. His leg was up like a balloon. I put him into some socks. He was an ex-pharmacist. He came back in two days later. He said, "Look at that. His foot was the leg was down to a normal size." So, 
Yeah, they're fantastic things, and I really think uh, a lot more people should be aware of using them, certainly for long coach, say the elderly when they go on coach trips, very, very important, and even for younger people too. But they do make a tremendous difference clinically and also from a comfort perspective. I guess the only drawback with those things is during the summer when it's very hot because they get a bit clingy. Well, there are some terrific ones, actually. There's ones for diabetics. We stock um, ones that were pioneered some time ago with silver thread, actually proper silver, put into them, and that has some tremendous health benefits from keeping minor infections down in tinea and other things. So they're not so bad. Yes, they are a bit hot, but they come in various thicknesses nowadays in different grades. Um, The big problem, actually, with some of the compression stockings for the elderly is being able to get them on and off because they are fairly tight. So there is a technique how to do that, and they need to be shown. One of the things that's recommended to us to maintain good health is to walk. If the feet are very sore, should we persist with walking? No. Basically, what should be done, really, look, if, if the body has warning signs like that, we should be more intuitive and, and recognise those warning, warning signs and then seek some help. So either see the GP, but say in a case of if it was purely a foot problem, the first port of call would be a podiatrist. And then we would have a look at the foot, see why it's happening. Um, we'd look at the whole body situation, the general health situation, examine the footwear, check the biomechanics of the foot and make recommendations. To walk, in answer to your question, to walk and cause permanent pain and damage to your foot, no, is not a good idea because the body is telling you something. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols and my guest today is podiatrist Stephen Boskill. Stephen, if people have got on their feet all day and they get tired and swollen, what's the best thing to do to relieve it? Well, look, the... The swelling of the feet, as we were talking about earlier, is uh, most of it is edema. Okay? So the best thing they can do is do some muscle tensioning. They, it, a good thing to do is the old army trick when we were in the reserves, if you're on parade. If you ever felt yourself going wobbly in the head, you were told to squeeze your buttocks, squeeze the back of your legs, tense the muscles up and relax, tense and relax. And that helps just pump the fluid round. Getting back, if you have a problem, again, if it's a persistent problem, you should see a GP. And, and have that assessed as to why the feet are getting swollen uh, to get everything checked. Um, some simple exercises is to um, lie on the bed, elevate your feet, say uh, put a pillow over the end of the bed if you've got a rail on the end of the bed, and just rest the feet there. You can start doing some flip-flop exercises with your feet. Um, you could even lie on your back if you're well enough and just support the low back with the pillow and do some bicycling in the air. Um, again, with the feet elevated, tension and compression of the muscles all helps to drain the fluid back. Do you see more men or women with these problems? In general, it seems to be more women. We do see men with um, edema problems, but normally that tends to be um, as a result of sort of diabetic complications or other things like that, I've found. What the most significant thing that happens to a person who's got diabetes? Uh, What happens to their feet? Okay, well, look, the two big things about diabetes, it's, A, a very insidious and very dangerous disease to have, although it's sort of, like, years ago when I was a kid, I remember diabetes was, yeah, a big sort of horror thing. Um, we perhaps are aware of it nowadays, but it hasn't quite got the horror side to it as much as perhaps it should have because our ability to control diabetes has been much greatly improved with various artificial forms of insulin. The, the two things that basically get affected significantly are the eyes and then the feet 
are the most important thing. As we said, they're the main weight-bearing contact of the body with the ground. There's a lot of things that will happen, but the, the main categories are that you lose sensation in uncontrolled diabetes. So you can get a point where the feet become completely numb with what we call peripheral neuropathy. Um, I've seen a case, for example, in North Shore Hospital where a man had an ulcer through his foot, and I'll get onto ulceration in a minute as a second consequence of diabetes, but literally it went from the bottom of his foot through to the top of his foot, and you could pass a pair of scissors through the thing, wobble it around in front of the bloke's face, and he couldn't feel a thing. I remember a lot of the younger students were cringing when the doctor did this, but it's just a demonstration. He had no feeling whatsoever. You could have given him a general anaesthetic, and he wouldn't have felt any less. So that's the sort of loss of sensation you can get. As a consequence of that, because the nerves control the muscles of the foot, we then get an improper feedback between the position of the foot and for the muscles to be able to control the foot into a proper position. So the whole foot goes haywire, it goes out of control and it isn't in a proper foot functioning uh, contact with the ground. And then we get a destruction of the joints, which were known as Charcot's joints. So we get arthritic changes, collapses of the joints and other things. Now, the other big category is with diabetes is that because of the glucose level in the blood, the cells don't operate properly, and then we get a lack of healing. So diabetics are very prone to infection, and a little scratch or a corn or um, something rubbing in your shoe can turn into what in a normal person would just be an irritation, perhaps a cut, which would solve and resolve itself in a couple of days, can turn into a raging ulcer. So the double penalty here is that Something as simple as a stone in the foot, in the shoe, um, the shoe rubbing will not be felt by the person. And because it's not felt, if they don't check their foot, will then turn into some kind of major wound, which, if not resolved, can turn into gangrene, loss of the foot, loss of the leg, loss of life. And that's unfortunately all too common. So the big thing for diabetes, diabetics is, obviously, is to follow their GP's advice be very careful and to examine their feet every day and love their feet. Now, that I see as being a bit of a problem if you're overweight. I mean, the last thing you reach is your feet. And if you're someone who's living on their own, how do they go about checking their feet? Well, that's very much the case, isn't it? It's like the old uh, naughty postcard of the fellow standing in front of the mirror saying, looking, looking, saying, long time no see. (laughs) (laughs) He wasn't referring to the feet. But the... um, the important thing with the, the feet is that if you can't get down to them, have someone else do it for you. Yeah, have them come to the diabetic education classes or to the podiatrist with you to know what to look for. If you can't get down, you can carefully place a mirror on the floor, but be careful not to tread in it and cut your feet or put it up against somewhere where you can have a look at the bottom of your feet through the mirror and hopefully you should be able to peer over the, the tummy to see the top of the feet. But if you can't get them, if you physically can't reach your feet, then you must really get someone else to do that. You know, and if people are in a situation where there are, they are by themselves, they should seek some sort of community help from their doctor or, or get some advice on that. I mean, there are other things you can do, of course, to reach the feet. You can, say, dry between the toes with some gauze on a stick and just carefully do that and some remote aids. But uh, that's why it's so important to lose weight, if nothing else. If you've got someone who has developed ulceration, how do you go about treating that? Well, look, they'd probably refer straight to their GP or to the podiatrist. Then there's a whole uh, raft of different things what you do depending on the type of ulceration. The big thing really is to try and get the pressure off the thing. Um, if we can get the weight-bearing 
pressure off the ulcer, then it has a much better chance of resolution. And that's where we come right back to where we started. Overweight, poor foot function, poor footwear and slopping around, which just causes rubbing, chafing and everything. So that's one essential thing is the biomechanical aspect of the ulcer. And then there's a whole raft of different dressings and wound care regimes. Um, There is a very uh, good one that's out now, but very expensive, is vacuum treatment for ulceration. But again, it's very expensive. So the big thing is that um, especially people who are not in a position to be able to afford a lot of treatment and with the hospital system the way it is, ulcer prevention is the most critical thing in diabetes. Obviously, the, as you were saying, the thing they need to do is to go and see a podiatrist on a, a regular basis. Um, how do we go about costing for visits to, to people like you? And is there any benefits for people who are on a pension, for example? Okay, that's an interesting question. Look, this has been a long-term thing which has actually been addressed by the government. A lot of people uh, with diabetes often were in lower socioeconomic groups and then they would um, not be able to afford or, or wouldn't see it appropriate to see a podiatrist. Thankfully, health funds, if you're in one of the higher levels, will cover most people for podiatry. Um, there's a percentage of the funds back depending on the health fund you're in. But also the federal government have introduced a thing called enhanced primary care where they can see their general practitioner and he has the discretion to allow five visits to allied health professionals. Now, it's a total of five visits completely across the whole range, so you can't have five for a podiatrist, five for a physio. Mm -hmm. You can only have five visits. And if he sees fit, he can, say, give five visits to the podiatrist if he thinks the problem's severe enough or perhaps two visits or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if people really are in a position where they're not covered, they can't afford to see a podiatrist, the enhanced primary care, EPC, is the thing they should remember and talk to their GP about that. And he'd obviously have all the, the details to be able to pass on from there. Yes, and he probably won't like it because it's very bureaucratic, but it is being streamlined. <laughs> um, if someone is, is going to a diabetic clinic, is there podiatry assistance through the hospital system as well? Oh, absolutely. Newcastle, um, I would say, would probably be one of the leading Um, centres probably in the country as far as the number of diabetic podiatrists available at the hospital and the uh, scope of practice they can offer there. So Newcastle Hospital is the main centre really for diabetics if they want to go through the public system. Now if someone is not living in or lucky enough to be living in Newcastle, um, how about the, the major hospitals throughout the country? I know Gosford does, and I think most of the major hospitals do. I can't really give any firm mm. um, things for any of the other hospitals, but I certainly know Gosford uh, does, and uh, most of the Sydney hospitals have diabetic podiatrists there. So I guess mm. the, the first step is to the GP and get them to send you across to the hospital. Really, look, the, f- yeah, the first thing for, for diagnosis yeah. and detection is the GP, then uh, an aware GP will make the necessary referrals. Stephen, is there some way that people can make contact to find out more about all this information that you've been giving me? Look, they can certainly contact the Podiatry Association. The number should be in the phone book, in the white pages, and certainly in the yellow pages under podiatrists. There's also a very interesting website that um, is offering a free service for um, dietary advice. It's not um, in-depth uh, specific dietary advice for diabetics, but it's run by the Sanitarium Health Food Company, if I give them a plug. But the f- free call number for that is 1800 673 392, and I'm sure if they phone the station here, you can 
give that to them again. Mm. Or there's the website, which is under nutritionaustralia.org. And uh, they will have free booklets on healthy eating for diabetics and other nutritional facts and figures which people might find very useful. Stephen, thanks very much. My guest today on Wellbeing has been podiatrist Stephen Boskill. Thank you for listening. Until the next time we meet, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of the team wishing you well. <laughs>